And if you would please now, as we prepare, well, we'll not prepare. We should be good and prepared already. <laughs> we should be <laughs> ready to go. Um, but let's uh, turn our attention to John chapter 7. John chapter 7, and I'll be reading verses 40 through 52. And believe it or not, I'm going to preach all these verses. We'll be here till tomorrow, but we're going to get through every one of these verses. John chapter 7, beginning at verse 40. John chapter 7, beginning at verse 40. And it's a, a 40 through 53, not 52, 40 through 53. Therefore, many from the crowd, when they heard this saying, said, Truly, this is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Will the Christ come of Galilee? Has not the scripture says, said that Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem, where David was? So there was a division among them because of this. Now some of them wanted to take him, but no one laid hands on him. Then the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why have you not brought him? The officers answered, No man ever spoke like this man. The officers answered. Uh, um, then the Pharisees answered them, are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, he who came to Jesus by night, being one of them, being one of the Pharisees, said to them, Does not our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? They answered and said to him, Are you also from Galilee? Search and look, for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. And everyone went to his own house. Amen. What, a, what, a, um, what an interesting yet common response uh, to Jesus. Division and derision. Or slander. And that's what you have here. The crowds are divided. And the Pharisees are slanderous. They hate Jesus. Remember our setting in John 7. This is during the Feast of Tabernacles. Jesus shows up at the Feast of Tabernacles. After his brothers try to exhort him to go with a large crowd to receive fanfare. He shows up second or third day of the feast. And he begins to teach. And his doctrine, his doctrine is so uh, powerful, his speaking, as the men say themselves here. No, one ever, no man ever spoke like this man. The people were so amazed that he had to, he explained to them that his doctrine was not his own, but that his doctrine was his father's, the one who sent him. And then the people begin to wonder, is this the Christ? Is this who he is? And he invites them all. 
to come and drink water freely. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And it is because of this, then, that a division occurs among the people. Note the division. Is he the prophet or the Christ? Now, I want you to note something here in this particular section, verses 37 through 53. And it is this, it is a focus upon the word. Note it here, because I think this is what holds this section together. Although that division is a just division, uh, where the division for the chapter, there's divisions and then there's derision. It's a good division for the chapter. But what holds it together really is the word. Notice in verse 40, beginning of verse Therefore, many of the crowds, when they heard this saying, said, what saying? Well, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. See, there's a focus upon what Jesus is saying there. That's why they were... Div- now, because of what Jesus is saying, a division occurred. Is he the prophet or is he the Christ? Is he the prophet or is he the Christ? And we'll see, even that division is a division that focuses upon the word itself. And we'll see why. But then, look at, look a little further. And when the Pharisees asked, why have you not brought him? No man spoke like this man. See the focus again upon his word. And then even Nicodemus. There's, they, they want Jesus captured. They want him put in, in chains. What does Nicodemus say to them? In essence, he says to them, why don't we turn to the word? What does God's word say? Does our law judge a man before it hears him? It hears what? His words. And knows what he is doing? So Nicodemus, in essence, is saying, in light of what he's teaching, why don't we bring him in? But instead of condemning him, let's hear his words and compare it to Scripture. So there's this focus on, really, the word of God. And this is what Jesus was preaching, of course. He was preaching the Old Testament and himself as the fulfillment of it. And this caused a division among the people. Now the crowds there are just the common, they're the common people. When they heard these things that he was saying, this leads to a division. The officers are confounded. They don't want to arrest him. Nicodemus himself wants to turn to the scriptures in light of what Jesus is saying. His words and works drew, they focus on his words. Now, of course, his works drew the attention of a vast multitude. But it was his words which caused the people to think. And particularly what it caused them to think about is the scriptures. As Nicodemus says, well, let let the word of God determine whether this man is just or unjust. The people are are, uh, disagreeing over, is he the prophet or the Christ? Well, these truths are grounded in Scripture also. In essence, the division occurs because of their knowledge of the Scriptures, what they know the Bible teaches. Which one is he? Now note, so 
So let's, let's uh, pay attention here. Jesus' words caused the people to think about the scriptures. In particular, this is the crowds. And a bit of a, dis, uh, a difference here, but Nicodemus wants the officers, or, or we see the officers and Nicodemus want to think about their actions in light of what Jesus says. So the crowds think about the scriptures. Nicodemus and the officers think about their actions, what they're going to do in light of his words. So let's look at the crowd first. What do they say? He's the prophet. We've looked at this, um, of course, this, um, that he is the fulfillment of Deuteronomy 18.18, the great prophet. But more generally, the main word used, the main words used to describe a prophet and his function, which this is uh, important, of course, because they're thinking about their Bibles, this crowd, are prophet, man of God, and seer. And if you've read your Old Testament, you've heard all of those words. And each one of those, ref- those words has a reference to something that's very important. The first, a prophet emphasizes that the man was called by God. He he was called to be God's mouthpiece. And all of the Old Testament prophets were called by God. God called them to their office. And they came and they declared the word of God. That he was a man of God pointed to his special relationship with God. God had called him to himself and now he becomes God's man. God's man among the people to speak to the people, the words of God. But he is also called the seer. And this indicates his, as uh, one author puts it, his remarkable powers of perception granted by God. He is able to uh, perceive the troubles in the people. He is able to perceive the truth in Scripture and then bring those things together to declare to the people what they ought to do, what they ought to believe, so on and so forth, what they ought to hope in. Now, Jesus was supremely called by God. He had the most intimate relationship with God, and he had the greatest insights into the plan and purpose of God. And the people can tell. They know. After they hear him give this sermon, they say this, and they've already said it though, but in particular here, when they are millions possibly gathered at this feast, they say, this is the prophet. It's got to be him. Now, this agrees perfectly with Moses' prediction that a prophet will come from Deuteronomy 18. 15 through 19. And that passage, that promise, it anticipated a great prophet, the arrival of a great prophet. And this prophet, of course, is, it's, is compared to Moses. This prophet is compared to Mo- Moses. Now turn there, Deuteronomy 18, and I'll begin reading from verse 15. Because I want you to see the, com- the, the comparison to Moses in this promise is very important because Moses served a, 
a particular office, right? A, there was a particular place and, and status, and connection to God and to the people that Moses had. So Deuteronomy 18, beginning at verse 15. The Lord your God, this is Moses speaking, will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst and from your brethren. Him you shall hear according to all you desired of the Lord your God in Horeb in the day of the assembly saying, what, so, so here's what they desired. So when there was a great assembly of people at the base of the mountain and they heard that voice from heaven thunder with power, what did they desire from God? Let me know more again. Let, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, nor let me see this great fire anymore lest I die. So you know what God says? Okay, well then, in my kindness and mercy... I'm going to send my son into the world. You're not going to hear this, this, this voice from heaven. You'll hear it on earth. You'll hear it in your own temple and in your own street corners. You'll hear it by wells. You'll hear it by pools of water. You'll hear it at the tabernacle feast. I'll, I'll, I will send the prophet like Moses, who has this, right? Moses had this special connection. He spoke to God face to face, it says, right? The, think, and now think here. This is a magnificent connection to the Gospel of John, if you want to understand the Gospel of John. For the law came through Moses. That's not a bad thing. That covenant, that law that God gave to the people through Moses, it was a blessing for them. God was revealing himself to them. But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. A much greater revelation of who God is came through Jesus. Because if Moses was face to face with God, consider this, Jesus is God. He and the Father have the same essence. Let me not hear the voice of my God, nor let me see this great fire anymore, the flame. I mean, you think, um, those of you that have lived here long enough have seen mountains on fire. I bet you it's pretty scary looking. And if that mountain was talking to you, it'd be even scarier. <laughs> they were frightened. And so what does God do? God clothes his son in flesh so that his message could be more easily received. Not only does he clothe him in flesh, he clothes him in humility in his outward form. He was a carpenter. He was, he, he, he was a, a, uh, just a, a, not, a, not in utter poverty like a homeless person, but he was of a humble estate. The, the point of the vision is going to be, in John chapter 7, the point of the vision is going to be, but he comes from Galilee. Right? That's like saying he's from Warsing or Kahungsen, you know? <laughs> right? He's a simple, he's a simple fella. Right? 
He doesn't come with great pomp and circumstance. So, so when his brothers say to him, hey, let's go to the Feast of Tabernacles. Man, we'll put you on a chair, you know, and bring you into the city, right? He says, no, that's, that's not it. That's not how my father wants me to engage his people. But a prophet would come in great humility. And the Lord said, um, continuing to read in Deuteronomy, verse 17, And the Lord said to me, What they have spoken is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren, and I will put my words in his mouth. Think of what Jesus says in John 17, My doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. And then they say, Oh, this is the prophet. It's got to be him. It can't be anybody else. He's speaking the very words of God to us. And he shall speak to them all. Moses was a prophetic mediator. right? He was a prophet and a mediator. And Jesus is an even greater prophet and mediator. And this is going to be very important for Malachi chapter 3 next week because he is called the messenger of the covenant. There in Malachi 3.1. The people are making biblical connections. His words are causing them to think biblically. The way he is speaking leads them to believe that the promise made to Moses is fulfilled in him. He is the prophet. And what was this uh, prophet's uh, mission, well, to speak the word of God. You see how the, so the word of God here, again, in the terminology they're using to describe him, focuses upon the word, his word. Now, the other thing they say is that this is the Christ. This is the Christ. Now, the hope of a Messiah is rooted in the promise given to David by God in 2 Samuel. It's 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 and 14. You can turn there. 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 through 14. And of course, it's, it's actually given before, because in Genesis chapter 39, God promises that the scepter will arise from the tribe of Judah. But here, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, it's very explicit. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. Remember the chapter, David says to Nathan, his prophet, he says, hey, let's build God a temple. He's hanging out in this shabby, you know, tabernacle. I'm a king. We've got money. Let's, you know, build him a magnificent house. And God says, no, I'm going to build you a house. And by house there, God means a dynasty, a kingdom. And he says to David, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you. That word connects this promise to the Abrahamic promise. I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. I'll stop there. 
Now, now you know, David, we just read Psalm uh, 110.1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit, um, the Lord said to my Lord, sit on your seat until I make uh, the, your enemies the footstool for your feet. I'm, I think David made the connection and thought to himself, I don't think he's talking about Solomon. Because this kingdom would be a kingdom that lasts forever. Now, what must be noted here, specifically for this context, uh, which I think helps make uh, this connection with John 7, is that the Messiah would not only be a king, but he would also be a prophet, like David was. You think of David, David wrote the majority of the book of Psalms. He was a prophet. And in the New Testament, he is called a prophet. When uh, Peter is preaching in Acts chapter 2, he says, um, beginning at verse 29 there, he, called, he says, David the patriarch. And then in verse 30, he says, therefore being a prophet. David was a prophet. That's Acts chapter 2 verse 30. So the Messiah would also be like David. He would be a king, and he would be a prophet. Now listen to this uh, quote. The, so the Old Testament teaches this, of course. But the, uh, Jewish writers in the, the intertestamental period, in the period between Malachi's chapter Four and Matthew chapter 1, during that period, they said the same thing. Listen to this quote. This hope of a Messiah was nurtured even when some two centuries following the death of Solomon, the truncated northern kingdom of Israel was assimilated by the Assyrians and the house of David drew perilously close to annihilation. With Israel's depressing history, of apostate kings culminating in Babylonian supremacy. Only a supernaturally supported faith made belief in the promise of a Messiah tenable. During the final two or three centuries of the Second Commonwealth, a flourishing religious community in Qumran lived in anticipation, and this is how they referred to the Messiah, of the coming one. And remember what John the Baptist says of Jesus, he says, are you the one who is to come? Are you the coming one? Are you the Messiah? And those in the Qumran community, these Jewish believers, um, they, they referred to him this way, the teacher of righteousness and the expounder of the law. This is who they hoped God would send to be the final witness prior to the glorious revelation of his divine kingdom. So the Jews, even, they were expecting, so the Old Testament, uh, so if we look at David, David was a king and a prophet. The Jews in the intertestamental period, which had an effect on the Jews that Jesus is talking to here, believed that the Messiah would be a teacher of righteousness, and an expounder of the law. 
But the Old Testament makes this very explicit also. Because in Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 5, when it's speaking of the Messiah, it says this. He shall strike, in verse 4, he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips, he shall slay the wicked. What, what does that mean? Right? With the rod of his mouth and with the, his, the breath of his mouth. What, what is that talking about? Calvin puts it this way. By the rod of his mouth is meant a scepter which consists in words. Right? A scepter marks your rule and your authority. Right? So kings hold scepters. But that scepter, that mark of authority is his words. And what do the officers say? No one ever spoke like this, man. They note his authority. That's why they're not gonna, I'm not going to arrest this guy. Are you out of your mind? There's no way. The second clause repeats the same idea by the phrase, the breath of his lips. As if he had said, Christ will have no need to borrow aid from others to cast down his enemies and to strike down everything that opposes his government. For a mere breath of a word will be enough. The gospel is a two-edged sword. And that's the sword that Christ is wielding when he speaks with this authority. So the Messiah, as his father David, and as the Jews anticipated, would be a king and a prophet. That's why they say, he's the prophet. No, he is the Christ. But now there's a division. And you know, okay. Right, you hear these kinds of sermons, and if you live in America, you want some application, right? Everybody wants application. Here's the application. You should know your Old Testaments. Read them. Read your Old Testaments. Christ is there. He is in the text. He is promised in the Old Testament. The only reason these Jews were able to have this discussion was because their hopes were grounded in the promises of God in the Old Testament. And they're beginning to see, although not imperfectly, right? They are beginning to see that what Jesus is saying may be a fulfillment of the hopes that we have. But, there's, but, so, but then they ask this question. Will the Christ come out of Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David? He's a descendant of David. Two things. He's a descendant of David and from the town of Bethlehem where David was from. So there's two things. He's supposed to be a descendant of David, and he is supposed to be from Bethlehem. This caused them to be divided. Now, what, you know, what, what do we... You know, there was a simple... They could have resolved this simply. How, could anybody tell me? How could they resolve this? Ask him. That's right. Just they, they could have just gone up to him and asked him. You think of, look, this is, this is wonderful. Uh, in John chapter 2, listen to this. Uh, in John chapter 2, 47. 
Uh, no, b- before that, before that, it's, um, uh, look at verse 43. This is when Jesus is calling all of his disciples to himself. John 1, excuse me, I said 2, I think. It's 1, I'm sorry. John 1, 43, I'm sorry. John 1, 43. The following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And what does he say? Can anything good come from Kerhunksan? Right? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And then Philip, what does Philip do? Philip says to him, Come and see. Jesus was completely approachable. Come, come and see. And then when Jesus sees him, what does he say? Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. He exposes his heart. And how do you know me? Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And there he, Rabbi, you are the son of God, the king of Israel. Nobody else would. Now, we don't know what he was doing under the fig tree. People, um, because of his statement, which is so uh, grand, he must have been praying. He must have been praying or doing something spiritual where Jesus, you know, heard it and points this out to him. But all they had to do was say, hey, look, we don't think anything good can come out of Nazareth. Help us out here because we think you're the prophet or the Christ. So, and, and here, this is important, right? Fact-checking Jesus is not faith. <laughs> if you have social media, you know what fact-checking is. It, that's not faith. Of course, faith is a work of the Spirit in the heart of a sinner, right? Faith is something that the Spirit causes and creates in hearts. But yet, faith is also... Something from our side where we receive and we believe what God says in his word. And we don't put him to the test. They should have come to Jesus. And they should have believed him when he invited them to come to him. He just finished doing that with them. He just finished inviting them to come. Come to me, all who are thirsty. Let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Instead of having a theological debate, they should have come to Christ. This is the great mistake that, we, that many people make when um, they're confronted with the truths of the Bible. They want to debate theology. They want, well, no, I, you know, I don't believe that. I believe this. And, and particularly, of course, this happens with those who, uh, this happens woefully. It happens inside the church. But it also happens with those who we are trying to witness to, right? They, they have all of this opposition. They should have come to Christ. This is not to deny the importance of biblical inquiry and research. There was something commendable about this group of people, about these two groups. They knew the Bible, and there was something about Jesus that was confirming truths from the Bible. But then what did they do with it? They argued. 
That's what they did. What they decided to do is fight with each other. Instead of bringing those things to Christ. And Calvin writes of this, he says, Such is our natural disposition. In matters of little consequence, we are ashamed of being indolent. When it doesn't really matter, we don't want to be taken as lazy, right? There's a sense. Now, he's not saying these two titles don't matter, but really they're referring to the same person, and it could have been an issue that was easily solved. And this happens in churches all the time in a matter that's not even important, you know? Uh, uh, what color are we going to buy pews or chairs, right? That becomes the issue, right? But if somebody's preaching a false gospel, it's okay. We're fine. As long as we got pews. While in the mysteries of the heavenly kingdom, we slumber without any concern. doesn't bother us. You know, we're sleepy about it. It's just religious hypocrisy, of course. It's just religious hypocrisy because they say things like this. Earlier in the chapter, now this might have been a different group of people, of course, because remember, uh, they say this on the first day in John 7, 27. This is, this is during Jesus' uh, first uh, speech, as it were. They say this. We know where this man is from, but when the Christ comes, no one knows where he's from. And this was their issue. The, their issue was that they knew where Jesus was from, that he had come from such a humble uh, estate, that's the old word. His circumstances were so humble. Right? So they repeat this throughout the Gospels. So in Matthew, and these are uh, various statements. They're kind of the same, but each one adds a little information. In Matthew 13, 55, they say this. Is, this. is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? In Mark 6, 3, Mark 6, 3. Is this not the carpenter? So he himself was a carpenter. The son of Mary, brother and brother of James and Joseph, Judas and Simon. And are not his sisters here with us? And in Luke 4.22, they say, is, not, is this not Joseph's son? There was a sense in, in, this, in this statement about where he's from. There was a, in them disdain for him. An unwillingness to receive him and to grant to him the title that he deserves, the prophet and the Christ. And we ourselves, we, uh, we can be prone to the same thing when we are ashamed of Christ. And increasingly, this is going to become the issue for many of you. There is a sense where, um, you know, my sermons go on the internet, so I'm in danger of somebody hearing me say something that is politically incorrect and getting in trouble. But most of you don't, you know, you, I don't work with unbelievers, really. Like, you know, it's, I'm around Christians. Those of you who work in, with unbelievers, 
these are going to be issues that you, this issue, and I'm going to tell you what it is, is an issue that you're going to have to deal with. If Jesus is who he says he is, I have to believe in him, and that means I have to live according to his word. And if you work with unbelievers, increasingly this is going to become an issue for you. What am I going to do with this man? Am I going to believe him? Am I going to receive his word and live accordingly? Or am I going to compromise? Because that's what Nicodemus does do in this chapter. Although he defends Jesus, he compromises. Look at what happens next. Look at this derision and disrespect. And this connects what they were doing. They wanted to, so they wanted to seize him. But in God's providence, they can't capture Jesus. So although there's a division, and man, there's good biblical discussion, it appears. There's no faith there. They really doubt who he is because of, because of his humility and because of his humble estate. Now, you hear it from those who, they outwardly really hate him. Now we hear them. There's disrespect or derision. Verse 45, then the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why have you not brought him? The officer says, no man ever spoke like this man. Then the Pharisee said to them, are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Note the irony here. The people in their uneducated assessment are closer to the truth than the Pharisees who are these preeminent teachers. They don't see that Jesus can possibly be the prophet or the Christ. They are so enraged and jealous that they don't see it, but the people do. And of course, these are, this is a blinding effect of tradition. What tradition does is it directs us to man as an unerring guide. And by doing this, it guides the conscience into thin ice. That's how, it's a paraphrase of Luther. He was a little bit rougher with his language. <laughs> I had to clean him up. <laughs> but uh, uh, you put yourself in eternal danger when you do that. And that's what the Pharisees are saying. You, you, why are you listening to, to Jesus? You don't know the Bible. We do. Listen to me. This is where we have to be very cautious. We, we all, as, as, as a people, corporately and individually, we must be in the Word. We, can, we can't... Um, you know, there, there are going to be issues where things are not clear. But generally, those are not gospel essential issues of salvation. The things that we need to know to be right with God are very clear in the Bible. Now, peripheral things may be unclear. And at that point, what we can do is we can defer. We can say, you know, as I've looked at this, not quite sure. I've tried to read all the passages and study the words and look at the commentaries 
and I think this position might be the most helpful. Here it is. Here are two others that are probable, but you know, honestly, it's unclear, right? That can happen. And we have to exercise humility in these things. We are not Jesus. Nobody on earth can claim this kind, the kind of authority and the kind of clarity and the perfection in speech like Jesus does. So we're always trafficking with imperfect people. So what we have to do is always yield our conscience to a greater authority, which is the scriptures. What the Pharisees wanted these men to do was, was the height of arrogance. And really, this is the spirit of the Antichrist. Nicodemus, now verse 50, who came to Jesus by night, being one of them, said to them, you guys are in sin, and you need to listen to him. Is that what he says? No. He says, well, why don't we have a trial? Why? Has he broken any laws? Not one. Jesus did not break not one law. Has broken no law. He's not done anything illegal. The only thing that Jesus has done is confront religious hypocrisy and declare the truth of the gospel. Oh, and heal a bunch of people who were sick. That's what Jesus has done. Now, of course here, um, one commentator asked this question. What we find here, is it worthy of a believer or of a Christian, what he's doing here? You know, if you're at work and, uh, you know, or you're talking to an unbeliever and they say, you know, Jesus was just a deceiver. He just wanted to start his own religion so that these Jewish people could follow him and they killed him. The right thing to say in that situation, is not, well, let's, let's figure out if that's true. You know why that's not the right thing to say? Because if somebody said that about your wife, that's not what you would say. All right? Or if they said that about your husband. If they said about your wife, or about your kids, or about whoever, about your mother, right? She's just a deceptive woman and a liar. I wouldn't say, let's put that to the test. <laughs> right? We wouldn't say that. Why would you say that? Right? If I was 13, we'd be in a fist fight. You said that about my mother, right? <laughs> it, w see, w we have been trained to be cowards when it comes to the faith. We have been pacified way too much. Where we should take offense. Now I'm not talking about being sinful or belligerent or disrespectful. I'm not talking about that. But I'm talking about taking, uh, really taking offense when somebody says something about our Lord. And although... You, you, right? you got to give credit where credit is due. He does say something. But it really is not what he should have said. The seed of the gospel is, is, is there. There's something there. 
but it's still being choked by the cares of this world. They answered him, verse 42. Are you also from Galilee? And now you see how this language, this is meant to be insulting. So when, when they're debating this issue, the crowds before are debating this issue and they bring up this thing about him being from Galilee, it's meant to be an insult. Search and look, for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. And again, the irony is, that's not true. You know, Jonah the prophet was from Galilee. And a bunch of other prophets were from that region. Um, there, I can give you, you know, we don't have time to look at all the passages. I have them, and I'll give them to you if you would like them after the sermon. But note this, Jesus when John asks him the question, which I think it's so, uh, Jesus, uh, John asks, are you the coming one? Does John asks Jesus, right? He sends his disciples. Once he's in prison, he sends his disciples because he's like, if he's the Messiah, why am I in jail? I should be free and we should be, you know, destroying the Romans or something. So he sends his disciples and this is how Jesus answers in Matthew chapter 4, beginning at verse 12. Now when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed from Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he came to, the, to dwell, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. That is Galilee. That's the region of Galilee. Right? Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. That, that's the Galilee. That it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And upon those who sat in the region of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So from where would the prophet, he's preaching, and the king, he's inaugurating the kingdom, from where would he come from? Isaiah tells me he's coming from Galilee. Not that he is from Galilee, but that he would come out of Galilee. And again, we go back to, you see how blind tradition makes you. Tradition makes us so blind that the, the Pharisees, who were the teachers of the law, they were unwilling to see these things. But now look at how the chapter ends. Everyone went to his own house. Everyone went to his own house. That's it. That's the end of the chapter. <laughs> There's this big to-do about Jesus. And then when the Pharisees are confronted, Jesus doesn't appear. It's done. Again, this may just be an indicator. It may point to the providence of God in preserving Jesus. It was not yet his time. So, well, you know, takeaway point. Know the scriptures. 
That is one of the things that, that this portion of John really instructs us to do. Put off traditions, put, put off your preconceived notions. Now, not all traditions, not all things are bad. Again, uh, we must use balance. But if they prevent you from understanding the word of God, they must be rejected. There must be a constant, on our own part, scrutiny of what we believe, of what's being preached, of what we're learning, of what we're reading, in light of what the Bible says, so that we can continue to grow in our knowledge of Christ and in who He is and in our service to Him. May God bless us and help us to do this. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. And we ask that you would make us the students of your word. May we depend upon your spirit to help us, to guide us into all truth. In Christ's name we pray, amen.